Please join me in the prayer for illumination. Let us pray. Holy God, help us as we read these scriptures together. Bring your understanding and reveal your truth. We long to be continually challenged, transformed, and renewed. May we focus on you and your holy word as we read and draw close to you. Amen. Our scripture today comes from 1 Samuel chapter, chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Hear these words. Now the boy Samuel was serving the Lord under Eli. The Lord's word was rare at the time, and the visions weren't widely known. One day, Eli, whose eyes had grown so weak he was unable to see, was lying down in his room. God's lamp hadn't gone out yet, and Samuel was lying down in the Lord's temple, where God's chest was. The Lord called to Samuel, I'm here, he said. Samuel hurried to Eli and said, I'm here, you called me? I didn't call you, Eli replied. Go lie down, so he did. Again, the Lord called Samuel, so Samuel got up, went to Eli and said, I'm here, you called me? I didn't call, my son, Eli replied, go and lie down. Now Samuel didn't yet know the Lord, and the Lord's word hadn't yet been revealed to him. A third time, the Lord called Samuel, he got up, went to Eli, and said, I'm here, you called me? Then Eli realized that it was the Lord who was calling the boy. So Eli said to Samuel, go and lie down. If he calls you, say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down where he'd been. Then the Lord came and stood there, calling just as before, Samuel, Samuel. Samuel said, speak, your servant is listening. The Lord said to Samuel, I am about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of all who hear it tingle. On that day, I will bring to pass against Eli everything I said about his household, every last bit of it. I told him that I would punish his family forever because of the wrongdoing he knew about, how his sons were cursing God, but he wouldn't stop them. Because of that, I swore about Eli's household that his family's wrongdoing will never be reconciled by sacrifice or by offering. Samuel lay there until morning, then opened the doors of the Lord's house. Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli, but Eli called Samuel, saying, Samuel, my son. I'm here, Samuel said. What did he say to you? Eli asked. Don't hide anything from me. May God deal harshly with you, and worse still, if you hide from me a single word from everything he said to you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. He is the Lord, Eli said. He will do as he pleases. So Samuel grew up, and the Lord was with him, not allowing any of his words to fail. All Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was trustworthy as the Lord's prophet. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh through the Lord's own word. The word of God for the people of God. Would you join me in showing appreciation for them leading us in uh, scripture today? Recently, one of my friends uh, posted on Facebook this little prompt, um, and I've wrestled with it a couple times. It was good to wrestle with it again, and the, the prompt, the question that they were posing was, what books are essential to your understanding of yourself? Kind of an interesting thought. What books are essential to your understanding of yourself? I don't know if you've ever read a book like that, 
right? You open the book and all of a sudden you're reading it before you know it, you're done and you say, that was impactful and you'll be a different person because of how that book kind of um, maybe read you a little bit. Um, but we've all had moments in our life that we could uh, point to as defining moments, right? The birth of a child, the loss of maybe a parent, um, a marriage or a graduation, maybe a new job. Something you could point to on the counter and say, man, this, this happened and all of a sudden I was somehow different because of the experience. But what about books? So I gave my, my friend this, this short list of books and if you're interested in that list, just come see me after service. And I, with that list, I gave it a little bit of a caveat. I said, you know, books are interesting. They come into our lives at just the right time. If you read that same book a year earlier or, or a year later, you just have an entirely different experience with it. And I remember the first time that I read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity in screw tape letters. It was at a Target department store on State Road 135 in Greenwood, Indiana. Uh, eating pretzels and slushies across from the guitar shop. Um, I remember those books and how they transformed me, not necessarily because of every word in that book, but because of who I read the book with. Um, the guy who brought those books to my attention at a very young age, his name is Chris Hyman, he was really my first mentor. I don't really know what, what struck me or kind of what got into me, but I was a freshman in high school and I kind of sought Chris out and I said, hey Chris, will you mentor me? Um, I, I don't know really what I meant when I, when I asked that, right? When you're 14, I, I don't know. I just said, I, I'm going to do this. I know I liked Chris. Uh, Chris was a good guy. It's interesting, though, because Chris was not on staff at church, right? Um, I grew up in a church similar to this size. Chris wasn't uh, the youth pastor. He wasn't my Sunday school teacher. He was just a baker. And uh, he and I had hung out a little bit. I think we maybe threw a Frisbee or something like that. And I thought, you know what? Maybe he can mentor me. And sure enough, he kind, of, he kind of poured into me over the next seven years. We met uh, once a week, all through my high school, uh, and then up into college. I went to a liberal arts college and studied youth ministry and biblical literature. And towards the end of my senior year, you got to give this kind of big sermon capstone, you know, uh, thing you do as a senior. So I prepared for all that, and he drove all the way up, and he sat in the class, and took me out to lunch afterwards, and just was there for me. Walked kind of through that whole entire season of my life with me. I tell you that story not because I think uh, that Chris was just fantastic, this awesome guy. I think Chris modeled what it took to get to know me as a person, what it, what it takes to raise a generation in faith, our invested adults and young folks' lives. And I wonder how we as a, as a faith family here at Chapelwood are spending our time to grow in knowledge of our kids. So I got appointed here in July, and I've been here for a while, but not as long as some of you, and I've gotten to know a few of our, our kiddos. I know that Grace, is she here? I don't see her. That's not that Grace. I'll get to her in a second. No, that's all right. She's not here. That's all right. I know the other Grace. Uh, she loves to play guitar. She's obsessed with Taylor Swift, Green Day, and the Eagles, kind of of, of all things, right? She loves all those bands. I know that Carter comes to first services right there, super inquisitive little four-year-old. Got a great theological mind, always asking some deep questions that I don't really have answers to. So it's difficult, and he's, he's great. I know Meredith is usually sits right about there at the first service. She loves to sing, and she plays, learning to play piano. I know that Emily and Julia are obsessed with Minecraft. I know that Danica always takes two suckers, 
And I don't know why, but that's fine. She, she's got them. She can have the suckers all she wants. And I know Tyler loves baseball. I've seen pictures of him on Facebook with his helmet and his bat, and he's even more, right? <laughs> so, and I know that Grace probably has an obsession with uh, Broadway plays. Um, too many to name, but, you know, Les Mis, Hamilton, all good things, right? And Maddox sits right there. He, he gives my boy a run for his money when it comes to the amount of energy and his love of Spider-Man. Um, the kind of kindled spirits in that regard. The point is not to say that you should memorize all the kids in the congregation, but I, I think you should. Uh, it's not you don't have to memorize all their names and stuff. The, the, the thing is, as we are talking about kind of what it means to be a faith family and raising a generation of faith, the question is, do you know the kids in this congregation? And can you have a conversation with them other than, like, how was your week? Right? Can you ask them about something in their life? And you say, tell me more about this. I know that you're into that, that you're doing that. Are you dedicated to them? Are you investing in them? So today we're going to take a look at what it means to know our kids personally. How can we raise a generation in faith if we don't know who we are investing into? And how can we effectively make disciples if we don't know who we are teaching or what they need to know and learn? This series is, is going to be five weeks, and it comes from this book, uh, Seven Things. You're lucky it's not seven weeks. So Seven Things John Wesley Expected Us to Do for Kids. It's a great book. It's written by Christopher Miles Ritter. I encourage you to pick it up and read along with us. Uh, and we're going to be focusing, last week we focused on teaching them intentionally. This week we're going to be talking about kind of knowing them personally. Next week uh, we're going to talk about pray for children intensely. Then we're going to talk about how we challenge ourselves continually. And last we'll talk about how we care for children practically. We just heard uh, from 1 Samuel a little, little bit ago. There's a long passage and there's a ton there. Thank you for reading it. There's, uh, you can have whole sermons on little throwaway little sections like the lamp of God had not gone out yet. Or, um, Eli's eyes were dim, but he could still see God at work. Right? There's, there's whole sermons there, just in like the little words. And we're going to focus on a couple different things today, but some background really on that text as we encountered it. First, we should know that, that Samuel was from the tribe of Levi. We don't get that from the passage, but we get it from Corinthians somewhere else. We'll talk about how was, uh, back in the day, right, if, you're, if your dad was a carpenter, guess what your job was going to be? you're going to be a carpenter, right? If your dad sold goats, you were going to be a goat salesman too, right? So you're born to the tribe of Levi. Guess what? You're a priest. That's what you do. And this is a really interesting time because Eli, uh, in the story of Samuel, takes place right after the judges and before the time of kings, right? We know the story about Saul and David, and there's the judges with like Gideon and Samson and Deborah, sort of all those you know, there's interesting stories. And then at the very end of Judges, there's this little verse. It says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Each person did what they thought to be right in their own eyes. This is a bad time to be in the temple business, right? No one's really looking to God for sort of direction. They're all sort of doing what they want. And then Eli, all of his boys have kind of gone off and done their own thing. And Samuel just kind of happens to be there. Eli has given the boy to raise. He didn't ask for it, to be clear, right? Hannah uh, is, you know, kind of without child, and she goes and prays. Eli sort of overhears her and says, what is it you want? May it, may it come to pass? And then, sure enough, she gives uh, birth to a son. She says, will you, will you raise him up? Kind of do your thing with, you know, like, teach him the trade. Will you pl uh, please be a priest? So Eli never agreed to anything up front. 
But this boy is sort of brought to him and he raises him up in the temple as one of his own. That's a powerful metaphor for a faith family. Again, we're talking about kind of the, the dual nature of that, of those words faith family. What does it mean at home, sort of in your family as you define that? And then what does it mean here in the congregation for us as a faith family to raise a generation in faith? And so we have this incredible story of a boy hearing the voice of God and this older man who's not even his biological parent helping him hear and discern God in his life. Talk about the power of a faith family. The power of community is central in the story. The importance of mentoring and helping young people discern is central here. Now, it should come as no surprise to a lot of you folks that uh, mentoring is sort of a big deal, right? In 2009, the National Institute of Health did a cross-disciplinary study of mentoring. Because typically when they study mentoring, they study it in what's kind of called siloed divisions, right? So they'll come over here and say, okay, as we examine the world of business and CEOs, what's the impact of mentoring on sort of top executives in their companies, right? That's pretty general. You'll hear mentoring talked about in that regard. Or you'll come over here and say, ah, as we look at the, you know, the classical school of arts, we're going to look at people who are, who are mentored in the, in the art of sculpture or classical com- uh, composition and how they kind of excel and mimic their master and how does the protege function in that regard. But the National Institute, Institute of Health said, let's look at mentoring across the board and see what are the benefits of mentoring. And they came out with a number of benefits. Oh, I got the study if you're interested, and I'll just read them off to you. Uh, mentoring favored non-risky behavior in protégés. It increased community relationships. It increased academic success across the board. Increased chances of overall employment. The psychological outcomes were positive, such as positive self-image, emotional adjustment, more positive social relationships than those who had not been mentored, and less behavioral problems. The New York Times ran an article in 2014 with the title, It Takes a Mentor. And the prompt, the the question they were kind of pursuing is this. What are the things that happen at a college or technical school that more than anything else produce engaged employees on a fulfilling career track? And the thing that made a difference more than anything else is you guessed it. A teacher, a mentor, a youth director, a pastor, a Sunday school teacher invested in that young person's life. They knew them personally. And they chose to invest in their life and walk with them to, sort of the, to navigate the tough stuff of life. The whole book of Samuel, right? It turns out to be way different if Eli didn't know a thing about Samuel. If Eli wasn't invested in Samuel's life, it just goes a whole other direction. Because if you're Eli, the temptation here is to sign it in, isn't it? The temptation is to say that I've lived a good life. I've done my job. I've been faithful. Maybe not my family, but I've done a good job. What Eli is beginning to notice, or what Eli is beginning to see, maybe through dim eyes, is that God is still at work in his people. What Eli is beginning to see is that it isn't entirely about his good life. It's not about his good job. It's not about his faithfulness. If that's what it's about, folks, we're to be pitied. If it's all about us, my good life, my faithfulness, it's not. Maybe Eli's beginning to recognize that it's about somebody else's. Maybe God wants to work through Eli for this little kid named Samuel. 
Maybe this story is about Eli helping Samuel discern the good life, helping Samuel live into his vocational calling and helping Samuel live into faithfulness. And Eli can only do this if two things are true, right? This is kind of uh, for our life as well, but for Eli in particular, right? He has to know Samuel, first and foremost. He has to be sort of in tune with Samuel's gifts and graces. This to be true, Eli has to know kind of what ticks for Samuel, what works well, and where does Samuel struggle? Eli has to be in tune with Samuel's walk with God as well. For example, let's say uh, <laughs> that Eli's sitting there, and then Eli would say, did you hear God? And Samuel goes, what? What God? Like, I don't know what you're talking about. Eli has to know that Samuel has a relationship with the Lord to even point out the fact that maybe the voice he's hearing is God. He said, maybe what you're hearing, you know, when we gather at night and we say that prayer, Samuel, maybe, maybe that same God that we pray to is talking to you right now. Eli has to know Samuel very well to be able to point to this truth in his life. Furthermore, Eli has to know God himself. And this is, uh, I think, really central to the story of Eli and Samuel, something that we often overlook. It's important because Eli cannot point Samuel to God if Eli does not have a relationship with God. We cannot raise a generation in faith if we do not have faith ourselves. We can't guide little ones into worship if we don't know what worship means. We can't pray with them if we've never prayed deeply ourselves. Eli has to have known God in order to lead Samuel to God. You cannot lead out of emptiness. There's this pastor uh, that I read a lot, his name is Eugene Peterson, and he's got this great little um, question, who pastors the pastor? As we uh, seek to kind of be good stewards of this congregation and lead you all, we have to be steeped in prayer. We have to be steeped in reading God's word and spending time with our family, practicing Sabbath, all these things that form and shape us so that we can help form and shape Y'all, it's the same thing with Eli and Samuel. Eli has to be in relationship with God because if he's not, Eli has nothing to give. You cannot lead out of emptiness. And so for Eli to point Samuel to God means that Eli has to have a relationship with God. And second, it is difficult to take people where you've never been. I grew up in Indiana, and we always used to go camping um, in the Red River Gorge, which is in Slade, Kentucky. I mean, y'all, you got to get lost to find it. You drive, and then you're like, I think we're lost. There it is, right? And it's the largest concentration of rocks east of the Mississippi. Multi-pitch climbs. It's got pristine rock walls, just great red granite climbing. It's, it's, it's beautiful, really. And I remember uh, that I went there a couple times, and I found this awesome camping spot. The problem was it, it wasn't on the map, right? Because the best things are never on the map. <laughs> so you had to get to it, you had to walk down this valley. It's a, it's a, it's a one and a half mile hike, one way in. And then you have to go underneath this rock bridge and you circle back around and that's when you come to the waterfall. And it's this beautiful cascading waterfall. But I remember I was trying to convince some friends to go with me. And I said, let's go, it's gonna be awesome. And they said, I, are you sure? I said, I've been there. Will you trust me? Will you walk with me? It's gonna be beautiful. Trust me for the journey. And so we'd walk, and then we came to, and we set up camp, and it was a beautiful time. But they had to go with me. It's so difficult to take people where you haven't been. It's difficult to raise a generation in faith 
if you don't know what that looks like and you haven't walked that path with God. It's difficult to sit with people who are struggling if you haven't had struggles yourself, if you've never doubted your faith yourself. I think this story is interesting for so many reasons. And partly is it's this beautiful story about hearing God's voice. We sang about it earlier. We'll sing about it some more here in a little bit. Hearing God's voice, answering God's call. Samuel hears God's voice. But Samuel only recognizes that it's God's voice because of Eli's mix in the story. I think for most of us, we want to be Samuel, right? We want to hear God's voice. We want to say, yes, I'm here. I'll do it. Yes. But maybe some of us are called to be Eli's instead. Some questions I think we should wrestle with today is, who are you helping to hear the voice of God? Who are you walking alongside and guiding in that process? And who is the Samuel in your life? How are you growing in knowledge of these young people to better lead them and equip them for the challenges that are ahead? This is the challenge that John Wesley had of the early Methodist people, and I I think it's the challenge we need to hear today. So may some of you be more like Eli and pour yourself out into young folks. Pour out your time, your talent, your gifts into the younger generation. And may some of you young ones be more like Samuel and listen carefully to the voice of God. And may we all help each other hear God in the midst of our lives as we grow in our knowledge of each other and God. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.